Good morning again. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to the book of James, James chapter 2. This morning we're continuing our series, Faith Works. James chapter 2, and if you don't have a Bible, we've got some black Bibles that are under the chairs nearby, and it's on page 1011, 1011 in the black Bibles that you'll see nearby. So James chapter 2, in the series Faith Works, James has been challenging us to not just think of faith as an idea, uh, both in our modern culture and also in the Gnosticism of the ancient culture when this was written, there was this idea that just knowing the right stuff is okay. You just got to know the right facts or know the right philosophy or know the secret knowledge. And James says, no, you have to live what you believe. Faith works. Faith looks like something. Faith expresses itself in fruit in our lives. So James is going to challenge us each week. He's going to push us and press us. This week, it's recognize value. Recognize value. We're going to be challenged to think about what we value, what we say is worthy in this world. Is it just things that look shiny on the outside, or can we see through the externals and value the same things that God values? So that's the question we want to be thinking about. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So the main idea is partiality. It can be translated as favoritism, and literally it's judging things by the face, judging things on the surface. That's literally the Greek phrase. So don't show favoritism, don't show partiality, don't judge things just by the surface. Verse 2, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let me pray for us. God, we do ask for your mercy. We thank you that mercy triumphs over judgment. We confess judgmental hearts and we ask that you would speak to us this morning. We thank you for your word. We pray that your spirit would meet us here and help us to, uh, to hear what you're saying, to receive what you're saying, to be with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we think about recognizing the proper value And that is in contrast to not judging things by the face or by the surface. He's talking about here with the idea of partiality or favoritism. I was remembering how we judge the value of things when I was a kid in the store. Some of you may have been in stores like this, but it's becoming more and more rare. You almost never see this anymore. When I was a kid and you went to the store, you could grab any item off the shelf 
and it had a price tag or sticker on it. Do you remember those days? Now you have to take the item to a teenager with a, a laser, and he has to interpret the secret barcode for you to know how much it costs, right? But back then, there would just be these little stickers on everything. Any can of green beans you could just grab, 39 cents, you could see the value on the surface. And we prefer that as people, right? We like it when we can just make quick judgments and know how much something is worth. We can just decide the value of something based on the surface. James is challenging us to push back from that and to seek to understand how God values things. As humans, we prefer to value things with the external price tag that we can see. Um, the, the feedback is driving me crazy. Can you all hear that? It keeps going. It's driving me nuts. I don't know what it is. All right. I'll get three or four people to work on that real quick. We prefer to see the surface value. And God is going to say, don't just judge things by the external price tag. Look deeper. Look deeper. Later on in James, God's going to tell us that our value as human beings is based on being created in the image of God. It's not based on how much bling is on the surface, how expensive our clothes are, what we wear, who we hang out with. That's not our value before God. Our value before God is is we're his. We're created beings, created in God's image. So James spells that out real clearly later on in the book. Here he's saying, as humans, we often want to place value on the things we see on the outside. The first thing that we need to understand to to get our sense of value straight before God is we want to recognize what is truly most valuable in the world. And so the first thing we need to understand is the value of true glory. So James hits this pretty hard in the first verse He says it this way, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He's going to emphasize here the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's even more clear in the Greek because it's said in a really bold way. It just says, Jesus Christ, the glory. So it's kind of a a bold, simple way of spelling it out grammatically that almost would sound weird to us in English. And so the translators have smooth that out for us. The translators have tried to make that smoother and say he's the Lord of glory. They've added some prepositional phrases, but in the Greek, it would just be holding your faith in Jesus Christ, the glory. He is the glory. There is no other glory compared to him. He is the true ultimate glory. Nothing else can measure up to his glory. Now, the word glory in the Old Testament uh, has a sense of weightiness and solidness. Um, In the New Testament, the word also adds to that a sense of brightness and value. So there's a piling on of terms here that all kind of overlap where he talks about don't judge things by the face of things, talks about gold, and then he talks about people walking in with bright clothing, and then the word glory itself can have a sense of brightness. And so he's kind of comparing all these terms together. And so when you stack all that together in the context here, what we understand is he's saying there are lesser glories and there is ultimate glory. And God is the ultimate glory. As human beings, if we worship God as the ultimate glory, then the secondary glories we can receive as gifts. We can say, thank you, Jesus, for this meal. Thank you, Jesus, for this car. Thank you, Jesus, uh, for this uh, new thing that you've brought into my life. And it's a secondary glory. We recognize the glory of it. We're thankful for it, but we don't worship it. So when we worship the right thing, that helps us to not worship the gifts that God gives us. So we have to get our value straight by recognizing the true glory of Jesus himself. So he says, show no partiality as you hold faith in Jesus, the glory, the real glory. He goes on and says, if a poor man wearing a gold ring, fine clothing, comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing, or excuse me, a man 
rich man with gold ring and fine clothing comes in, and then a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay more attention to the one who wears the fine or bright clothing, and you say, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Judges with evil thoughts. So what he's saying is that when we honor these secondary glories more than another in our community and how we gather together, we're not acknowledging that Jesus is the true glory and we're actually showing evil thoughts. We're showing that deep down inside, we really honor nice clothes and gold more than we honor Jesus himself. So he's saying our gathering should be a gathering where we honor all people equally because Jesus is the true glory problem is, I think we're all guilty of this. problem is, we all do this. We do it in different ways, right? I mean, you might be thinking, well, I don't do that with rich people or people that wear a lot of gold, but we all do it with something. We all do it with something, something in our life that we said, that really matters. That person's really hardworking. That person really has their stuff together. I really like the way that person speaks. That person's really kind. Whatever it may be, we, we tend to elevate the things that we value as having ultimate value instead of recognizing the value of the true glory, Jesus himself. And so it's a matter of ordering these glories in our lives. Worshiping Jesus is the ultimate glory, then we can receive these secondary glories as a gift from God. I want you to think about it as we think about how this applies in our own heart. How, how does this happen in your own heart? What are the things that you tend to notice? Who are the things that you tend to, or who are the people that you tend to honor? And what are ways that you can honor others Honor everyone is made in the image of God. Children sometimes notice uh, toys, right? Have you ever been shopping and a child notices a piece of candy or they notice a toy on the shelf and they're just then obsessed with it, right? And they just can't let go of it and they want that thing. There's, there's this thing I've seen on the internet several times about children who have like wormed their way into these toy boxes, right? They're these toy block boxes in a glass cage where you can put quarters in and the claw goes down and grabs a toy, right? And it only works every hundred times where it actually gets a toy. Most of the time it doesn't work. And so the kids can just take it on themselves to just work their way in there. The hole is big enough, some kids can get in there. It's a beautiful picture or a horrifying picture maybe of sin, right? I mean, we know this case, it's okay. We know the fire department got them out and everything's okay. All right, just to calm down, mom's in the room. The child escaped. But in our own lives, we fixate on whatever that toy is, right? Whatever that shiny object is that we want, money or relationships, maybe it's that promotion, maybe it's being around the right people, maybe it's being in this inner circle, maybe it's being thought of in a certain way, and we obsess on that, and we make that the glory in our life, and we're worming our way into that box, and then we wake up one day and we're trapped, we're stuck. James talked about this a couple of weeks before Stephen Watson preached on the lure, how sin lures us, entices us, the desires that we have, and then we're hooked by it. The next thing they know, we're enslaved to these things because we've made them ultimate glories instead of worshiping Jesus as the ultimate glory. So if we make sure that we understand Jesus' glory, then we can enjoy these secondary glories and they don't have that same power over us. They don't have that same hook into our hearts. When we think specifically about what James is pushing here of not honoring money, that's the primary thing he starts off with, not showing partiality or favoritism or judging things on the surface in your community by holding up rich people in your community, 
I want us to think through how we can apply that in our own setting. So first thing he thinks about, or he talks about, is just money, right? So I want to share with you some of the ways we, we try to work through that as a community. Our church is about nine years old, and one of the things that we've been strategic about, um, and this is not the only way to apply what James is saying, but one of the ways that we have applied this in our setting is we've said we're going to create a casual culture in our worship environment. And we've strategically done that not because we want to belittle the holiness of God, but because we want to welcome all people. So I know that can be taken to extremes. I I honor my brothers and sisters that, that believe that it's good to show God your best and to glorify God by glorifying him with, with dressing up, right? Bless you. I, I honor that. I don't want to disrespect that at all. We've just made a different decision how to apply this passage by saying, we're going to be casual here because we want to say it's not about the clothes, but it's about Jesus. So that's just a standard we've set, a way of applying this. As I said, there's different ways that people apply this in different contexts, but we've said we don't want to promote fancy clothes. We want to promote a sense of a casualness with how we dress so that the focus can be on Jesus as the ultimate glory. Another way that we apply this in our context is I don't personally look at what you give. I look at the overall numbers, right? Did we meet budget? Did we not meet budget? Those kind of numbers. But I don't inspect what all of you give. And that's a way to protect my heart as senior pastor from what has taken hold of many senior pastors and hooked their heart of only wanting to minister to those with lots of money and influence, right? In America, a great way to build your ministry would be to network with those most influential and powerful and financially well-off people. So one of the ways I try to protect my heart from that is I don't look and inspect at what you give so that I'm not, again, judging external things, judging on money, but I'm trying to value all people. Now, do we believe you should give? Yes, we believe you should give. We'll continue to exhort you from the scriptures that part of following Jesus is contributing towards his worldwide work in the kingdom. But I'm not going to inspect individually, person by person, what you give to protect my own heart from showing partiality. Another way that we can think about this is with rank, right? So the army has a great system, a great rank structure. I think it works great in the army, and we don't want to tear down in the army what is going on, but we want to say that's not how the church works, right? So we don't, we don't operate with a rank structure in the church. Do we have leaders in the church? Yeah, we have leaders in the church, but, but basically we should be on a first-name basis with each other and consider each other all equal before God, all brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we don't wear our rank into the church community. Now, do we always know how to work that out? No, we don't always know how to work that out. Am I saying as uh, a Christian soldier, you should take that Christian concept and push that back into the army and try to be all chummy with your commander? No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is we're going to try to resist pulling that army rank structure into the church and recognize that's the army's culture, but the church's culture is one of not uh, elevating these external things and honoring each other, not based on our rank, but based on being created in the image of God. We have value to God because of him making us as his children. So pray about that. Again, we don't have all the answers. We don't know how to work that out, but that is something we want to seek uh, to live out, to apply what James is saying here. Another way to think about this is just the external concept of coolness, right? The external concept of coolness. We can often overvalue that in our society. And I just want to say, I know there are some cool people here with us today, and we're glad you're here, right? But the rest of us need a place to worship as well, okay? And so we don't want to overvalue what the culture says is cool or hip or trendy or whatever words you want to 
used for that. We just want to recognize that that exists, and that's a temptation to overvalue that and say, you know what, we're all the same. We're all people just kind of struggling to figure things out here, and we want to honor each other and show the same grace and kindness and relational community values to each other, no matter what background we come from. Another thing to think about is ethnicity. One of the great blessings of the military and the influence that the military has on Colleen, Texas, is that Colleen, Texas is one of the most most ethnically integrated cities in the South. I would put it in a list of top 10 of integrated cities. You go to other cities, there are segregated neighborhoods, right? People of this shade live in this neighborhood. People of that shade live in this neighborhood, and they're all segregated off. And you go to the neighborhood, and everybody looks alike. That's not the case here. And I love that. That's one of the most beautiful things about Colleen, Texas. What I would say is, as a church body, the leadership of Grace Bible Church, our, our craving, our desire is that we would be integrated, not just by accident, because Colleen is integrated, but we would be an integrated, multi-ethnic, multi-colored body, just like the vision of the New Testament because of the gospel. That we would be united by the gospel and what God has done for us because of who Jesus is, not just because we happen to be in an integrated city, Right? And so that's, again, a desire of ours. We don't always know how to do that, but the leadership is praying for that. We're trying to learn better how to honor those of different backgrounds and recognize that Jesus is about building a multi-tribe church. That's what he's doing. And we can either be on board with that or we can try to do our own thing. We want to obey Jesus and be about what Jesus is about and build a a multi-ethnic body of believers that love him more than our own tribal preferences. Well, the next thing I want us to think about is the value of being chosen. So first, we see the value of Jesus as the ultimate glory. Now we see the value of being chosen. This becomes a a humble posture that we have towards Jesus. Instead of thinking of ourselves as better than others, we have this humble posture of, God has reached out and chosen me. He's shown love to me when I didn't deserve it. Look at verses 5 through 7 where James spells this out. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? And we want to be careful here because some Christians Uh, take this and kind of spin it hard to God just kind of hates rich people, right? And we want to be careful about that because all of us as Americans are rich people. We're richer than everybody else in the world. So if God just automatically hates rich people, we're all going to hell, okay? So we want to be careful about not pressing that too hard. But there is this, this push in the scriptures that those who have their basic needs met, those who can take care of themselves, often don't see their need for God to take care of them. So we need to recognize that we often get confused about our spiritual condition because we have our physical needs met. And we think, you know what, I can take care of myself. I don't really need God. I can do things on my own. The gospel helps us understand that we're broken, that we are spiritually bankrupt, and we need Jesus. So if if you want to talk more about cross-references, I can give you other cross-references that say that not all rich people are automatically bad people. Okay, We can talk about that later, but what I want to really press on here is verse 5. In verse 5, he says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? There's this beautiful idea of the good news that although we were sheep, 
that we're wandering as far as we could get from the shepherd, the shepherd loved us more than our wandering and he chased after us and rescued us, right? That God is pursuing us in love. That even though we were orphans, completely abandoned, without family, without parents, God as an adopting, loving father pursued us and grabbed hold of us and brought him, brought us close to himself. So there's this pursuing, choosing, adopting love where God initiates, God pursues. We love because he first loved us. And that should humble us. That should humble us. I have a picture here of a mom kissing a baby because I think adoption is one of the the cleanest, clearest ways to understand this in the New Testament. Uh, The picture, the terminology of adoption is connected with the gospel in Galatians and in Romans where we're told that the fact that we are on our own but God made us part of his family is adoption. It's spiritual adoption. So God brings us in to his family so we can have this value of I didn't deserve grace, but God showed me grace anyway. And when we have that perspective of God, that changes how we relate to other people. Again, James is talking about how we relate in community. And if we believe that God loved us even though we don't deserve it, then we're not going to just stand off to the side waiting for people to be good enough for us to love them, right? We're going to start acting like God and we're going to approach people in love. I think it's a real danger of our generation that we want so desperately to be authentic that we don't want to push too hard to show love to people. Something that really bothers me is we think, well, if I, if I try too hard, then that's not authentic. God, God tried really hard. God gave everything to love us. He died for us. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to absorb the wrath that we deserve because of our sin, because of our wandering. He paid the price for our sin to rescue us, to bring us back to himself. So if we believe that good news, that we're saved because of what God has done and not because of what we have done, then we're going to act that way towards other people. That's going to live itself out in our community. We're going to take steps to initiate. We're going to approach others in love. We're not going to just love the people who have something they can give us. We're not just going to say, oh, well, that guy's rich and he has influence, so I'll be his friend, and then maybe he can help me out. No, we're going to love anybody. We're going to love everybody. Now, sometimes this can get confusing because in the scriptures, there's uh, other terminology, uh, election and predestination. And sometimes people get frustrated by those doctrines because then our our mind goes down all these other trails of, well, what does that mean about God? And uh, are we just robots? And what all does that mean? And I, I would just say all the places where this is talked about in scriptures, it pushes us towards a humble posture of saying, God has come after me in love. God has come after me in love. If you want to have the philosophical conversation of what do all these things mean and what is, how does predestination work with free will, we can, we can talk about that more if you want to talk about that. But I think the main point here and the main point in the other scriptures, like in Ephesians chapter 1 and Romans chapter 9 and, and John 6.44 is a great one. It says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Romans 5.8 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The idea is that we were lost and he came and found us. Is that hard philosophically to work out all the rabbit trails of what that means? Yes, it is. The important thing is our heart would be impacted by the fact that God loves us. He he chose you. He grabbed hold of you in love. And that, if you believe that, is going to change how you love other people. 
That's going to make you the kind of person that doesn't just stand on the sideline waiting and watching, but it's going to make you the kind of person that steps into other people's lives because you believe God stepped into your life. Your choice was sin and death. Our choice is hell, but God's choice is love for us. Can our mind figure out how that works together? I don't think so, but I'm, I'm going to rest and rejoice in the reality that God showed love to me in Christ. And that's going to change how we're going to react to other people. What are some ways we can live this out? How do, we, how do we do being chosen, right? How do you apply that? I'm chosen by God. I've been chosen by God. What does that, what does that mean? Well, I, I think it means we're going to choose other people. We're going to choose to step into other people's lives. So first of all, that should just be a heart posture where we pursue other people in love. We're not afraid of looking inauthentic or looking like we're trying too hard. We're just going to initiate and reach out to people in love. I think there's some specific ways you can live that out in our community. One of the ways that I think is really practical is just serving in our nursery, right? One of the ways that as a church we come together and we worship Jesus and we talk about what his word says is we have a nursery for the children so that people can bring their children in and know they're taken care of safely. And that's one of those areas where when you serve, you're not exactly getting a lot of money or prestige uh, or things in return when you serve there, right? You don't go serve in the nursery because one of the kids is rich and is going to help you get a job someday, right? You don't serve in the nursery because he's wearing fine gold clothes. No, you serve in the nursery out of love for Jesus, knowing that you might get thrown up on, right? Like that's just part of the deal, right? You're not, you're not pursuing fine things, when you serve others like that. So that would be a practical way we can work this out. Another way is caring for the elderly. As the baby boomer generation gets older, from what I understand of demographic studies, it's going to be uh, the largest increase in the elderly population our country has ever seen. As a culture, we tend to worship youth. So we've got two things uh, that are running into conflict with each other there. Our culture says uh, older people don't matter Jesus says we should care for everyone. I think we should side with Jesus and begin to think of concrete ways we, should, we can and should care for the elderly in our midst. Not just our own family, but, but others, because we have a whole culture that is throwing away those who are older. Another way we can do this is by serving at Hope Pregnancy Center. Hope Pregnancy Center exists to help women that are uh, struggling with an unwanted pregnancy, and instead of just protesting abortion, folks at Hope Pregnancy Center walk alongside women and say, let me help you choose life instead of choosing abortion. So giving them practical care and help and counseling in that situation. We already send money as a church to that organization. We'd like to send you there as well to serve with them. Another way uh, you can serve and choose others instead of um, just choosing yourself is the prison ministry. We have some folks involved in prison ministry here. We'd love to send more of you to be involved in that. We'd love to get you involved in that. Another ministry, Celebrate Recovery. Folks that are to the point of recognizing I'm, I'm broken, this hurt or habit or hang-up uh, is, is hurting me. I, I can't move forward. I need help to grow through this. We'd love to get more of you involved in their locking arms with people that are at a place of wanting to grow. Um, two more ministries, and then we'll move on. Uh, one is just hospitality. Uh, this is organic, right? This is just inviting people out to lunch. If you're new at Grace Bible Church and you feel like, man, I sure wish someone would reach out to me, I'd tell you, well, half of you are new. So if you could take a step of initiation and reach out to someone else, that would really help. That would go a long way. If you recognize that Jesus has reached out to you, then take a step of reaching out to someone else. And then finally, greeters. You can be a part of our 
greeter team, just simply shaking people's hands at the front door, right? That's something that helps us to show that, that God reaches out to us in love. Just a simple thing. These are just simple ways to apply the gospel uh, in our church and in our daily lives. Well, the last thing I want us to think about is the value of objective standards. He, he goes from this idea of Jesus being the, the ultimate glory, then he moves to the, the idea that we're chosen by God. He showed love to us when we didn't deserve it, and now he's moving to the idea of this objective law, this objective standard that stands outside of ourselves. We have a gold standard that helps us to understand what is really valuable. So look at verse 8. He says it this way, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. So that's our objective standard. So those of you that meet that standard, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. Jesus would say, uh, then you're healthy, you don't need him, right? If you love God perfectly and love other people perfectly, uh, you don't need what Jesus has to offer you. You're a perfect man or a perfect woman. I, I don't think any of us fit into that category. Verse 9, but if you show partiality, again, judging by the face of things, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. So sometimes people like to paint the idea that James and the Apostle Paul don't always agree on things. This is a great verse to show uh, that James and Paul agree completely. He says, if you keep all the law but you fail in one point, you're guilty of breaking all of it. And that's why we need Jesus who fulfilled the law perfectly for us and who paid the penalty of our disobedience. And so we understand that no one can perfectly fulfill the law. None of us loves God and loves others perfectly all the time. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Paul says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 11, for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder, right? Now he's quoting the Ten Commandments. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now this seems a little bit out of left field because James has been talking about showing partiality. And now he quotes the Ten Commandments and he says, so if you haven't committed adultery, but you do murder, you're a sinner. And if you show partiality, you're a sinner. I want you to see that he's connecting murder with showing partiality. Uh, a lot of commentators understand, I think it's pretty easy to see when you read James and read Matthew, that James is in a sense like a running commentary on the Gospel of Matthew and specifically Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in the beginning, chapters 5 through 7 in, in the Gospel of Matthew. And so in that section, Jesus says that if you call someone a fool, you're guilty of committing murder. If you devalue someone, that's just as bad as committing murder. See, Jesus takes the Ten Commandments and he says they're pretty black and white and they deal mostly with external things, but they're also talking about our heart, right? If we have a heart that doesn't love someone perfectly, we're guilty of committing murder. James is connecting the dots for us that Jesus has already connected. He's going back to that and he's saying none of us keeps the law perfectly. None of us does this as we should. If you don't commit adultery, but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So here's the answer, verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. The good news is always preceded by the bad news. The bad news is we've all broken the law. The good news is that Jesus fulfilled the law for us. And so we can only, only have a proper sense of value in our community 
if we understand that we're all the same, we're all sinners that have broken the law. We've all wandered away from him, but Jesus is the true glory who gave himself for us. And that's how God showed his love for us. And that's how we know how to truly value those around us. So instead of just valuing people based on how much money they have or based on what they can do for us or based on how they make us feel or based on whatever else it is that we're attracted to in life, we base their value on being created in the image of God and recognize that we're all sinners that need Jesus and he loved us, so we're going to love each other. It's pretty simple. When we do that, when we live that out, we're speaking and we're acting as those who we will be judged by an absolute standard, but in that absolute standard, there's also grace. There's mercy and judgment, but mercy triumphs over judgment. So we have a ruler here, which signifies uh, what theologians often call the canon is kind of the, the measure of Scripture, right? So God's law, when we look at God's word, God's objective standards of what God has said human beings should be like, we all fail. We all fail in different areas, right? What we want to do is we want to say, I'm not so bad. I've been keeping the five or six commandments that are important to me, right? The problem is there are 10 commandments, and we all just keep five or six that are most important to our upbringing or our tribe or to our background of abuse or difficulty or turmoil or whatever we bring, whatever baggage we bring in the door, we say, I'm keeping these five or six commandments. And God says, well, I've got 10 commandments for you. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we need the mercy that he offers in Jesus. And we recognize that we all fall short of his objective standard, and that's what allows us to trust, to turn from our sin and to trust in what Jesus has accomplished for us. How do we apply this? Um, I think two ways we could do this. I would just try to make it real practical, as practical as possible. I would love if you have a pen right now to just write down a couple of people that you could reach out to, that you could show love to in your circles of influence. Might be where you work, might be in your neighborhood, here in the church community. If you would just write down a couple of names. If they're sitting next to you, you might not want to write their name down. You know, that might be weird. Maybe you don't have a pen. Maybe you don't have an idea in your mind right now and you need to pray about it and think about it. I think a lot of us, the Holy Spirit puts that person, that situation in our mind immediately. I was joking with a friend. They are saying, yeah, the Holy Spirit was telling me to do this, and I kept trying to say no, right? Whatever happened to you, I know that happens to me. The Holy Spirit says, move, talk to this person, love this person, reach out in this way. And I'm like, are you sure about that? I want to resist a little bit. I would say just commit, write it down, begin taking those practical steps to reach out to that person around you because you have the values that Jesus has. Instead of the values we always live with of who can help me, who can serve me, who can help me get my career ahead, let's start valuing things the way God values things. So write it down and begin taking these next steps to reach out to those around you. As we conclude, I want to just think about the the concept of redemption. It's not a word that James uses in this passage, but it's a a word that's used repeatedly throughout the New Testament. And my mind runs to this concept because we've been talking about uh, value and worth. And we've been comparing how we should honor all people with the idea that, you know, often we compare uh, value based on how much money people have. And so in the New Testament, there's this money idea, this market value idea of redemption. And the word is taken from the marketplace where you buy back something. It's often used of slaves, slaves who have their freedom bought back for them. And so we're told 
But as followers of Jesus, we've been bought back from our slavery to sin. Any of you ever been to an auction? Anybody ever been to an auction? An auction is a great illustration of this economic principle of value, right? If you take an economics, you understand that the value of something is whatever someone's willing to pay for it, right? The value of something is whatever someone's willing to pay for it. So at an auction, you see people bidding higher and higher and higher. And that thing may not be really worth that to other people, but it's worth it to the person that's bidding. Well, the New Testament tells us that Jesus gave us everything. His bid was the highest bid. He offered his life for us. He placed that value on us. So if we believe that, if we believe that Jesus placed ultimate value on our life to buy us back to our, from our slavery to sin, then we will begin to show that kind of value to others. We will begin to show that kind of value to others. There's this famous phrase that says, what do you give the person that has everything? You ever heard that before? Sometimes it's used in commercials. I would say the New Testament concept of that is what do you give the person who has everything? You give them a job to do. In Christ, we're told we have everything. We're told here in James that we've been chosen and we've been made heirs of the kingdom. Through Christ's death and resurrection for us, we have everything in Christ. We don't need anything else. We don't need to see people as an opportunity to get ahead. We have everything in Christ, and so what we need is a job. We need to follow Jesus and begin giving what we have to others for their sake. Let me pray for us, and then we'll respond together in worship. God, we thank you that you gave everything to us in your son, Jesus. And God, I pray that we would speak and act as those who have been shown mercy. We thank you that you bought us back at great cost to yourself, and we pray that we would live a life of buying others back with our time and our energy that we would give instead of taking. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.